Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. I couldn't help but think about the framework of something called the two, the two truths. Um, how many people are familiar with the, the two truths in, in Buddhism? And I mean, Wendy raised her hand. She was like, oh, forget it. <laughs> but, um, um, There's such a beautiful teaching, and the, the two truths are, these two truths you're, you're aware of, maybe just not in that context, but the two truths are a, a relative, on a relative level, a relative truth, and then there's an ultimate truth. And why these things are, these truths are so important is that they balance e- each other out. And if we understand the two truths, there, there's, there's no way we cannot be happy. There, it's a, it, understanding these two truths is just a, a recipe for ultimate happiness. It's really incredible. And when we have these two truths in, in, our, in our mindset and we're looking at life through these two viewpoints, then it could... Um, influence are not only our state of being but our actions our speech all of these things so setting this up a little bit the two truths is that yes there is a relative react conceptual reality this is the one that we normally live in this is where there's good and bad uh, happy sad small large all that stuff male female all that this is like relative conceptual reality. And then also underneath that is this ultimate truth, this ultimate truth, which is the non-conceptual existence. If we look at quantum physics, this would be the same as a quantum physicist saying, well, everything is, is energy, ultimately speaking. Ultimately, everything is energy, yet it appears in all these different forms, right? Energy could come to the form of a meditation cushion, a chair, a person, right? But ultimately speaking, it is what we call in Buddhism, empty of inherent existence or not existing from its own side, meaning that it needs our minds and our perception, our cognitive uh, ability to impute something out of this this uh, basic nature, right? So they would say emptiness in Buddhism, empty of inherent existence. So what this means for us in this balancing and this happiness is that as we move into attachment in life, we throttle up our our, uh, reminding ourselves of the empty nature and everything is good already as it is. Right? So we throttle that up and that helps with the attachment. And now that spacious that spaciousness of this ultimate this spaciousness and of this Buddha nature is that not only is everything empty of inherent existence and that does not mean it's nothingness. It just means no thingness and that which it is is already good is already love 
is already these positive attributes which we are seeking. So it's like back to that example the quantum physicist saying everything is energy and saying everything is this innate goodness already. So when we become attached to throttle up this idea of ultimate truth, that everything is good as it is. And then when we start to feel a little bit, a little bit moving towards this carelessness, right? Because we can move into nihilism if we keep that up. Then the relative truth brings us back down their feet on the ground. And what drives that part of our lives is what we're going over this whole this whole book is about this is the bodhisattva vow which is to help and to serve others so they're asking this one teacher you know what is enlightenment he says well enlightenment is this carefreeness like totally completely carefree and this intense desire to want all beings to feel that same carefreeness. So when we start getting a little bit ungrounded in the relative world, it means that we're not holding the insight that we're all connected. And so we need to move into our heart practices. I was just reading something recently with Jack Hornfield, and they said, you know, succinctly, what's the Dharma? He says, it's just two things, insight, Loving kindness. That's it. Insight, loving kindness. And he was really pointing to the two truths. Insight, and this is in meditation when we get this, the, the truth of ultimate truth is only done in meditation when we lease the conceptual bounds of our minds, right? We release and we rest in just the here and now of isness and we can get a glimpse. And then the loving kindness, this relative reality. What are we doing here and now with our lives? If we really want to be happy, then we're serving others. And even in serving others, we can get attached. And then when we start feeling ourselves get attached, then we move into ultimate truth and say, but it's okay anyway. Right? So this balances... <laughs> balances the two out. So we all know suffering happens. And so we can we could be with people that are suffering. We could be with ourselves when we're suffering. And so what happens when even though we're trying to take away somebody's suffering, but they're still suffering. If we move back into places that we have reached in meditation and say, yes, you know, this is okay as it is. Suffering is not separate from non-suffering. Ultimately, suffering, non-suffering, the same. Like a great Zen teacher said, there's no such thing as good and bad. No, there's no such thing between right and wrong. But what is right is right, and what is wrong is wrong. Those are the two truths. It's like that. Right? So the, the first 
the first verse that we're going over is examining one's own shortcomings. And as long as we don't have the glimpse of ultimate truth, right, we're always going to have shortcomings. And again, so this is, this is not to, like, to keep slapping ourselves you know, like, uh, in a way that's not full of love and compassion. Right? But it's simply that, like looking at, at ourselves in this open, free way with love and compassion mindfully and one of the most important pieces I'm actually going to read this first before I keep talking so you know what I'm going to go in there if having merely the appearance of a practitioner one does not investigate one's own mistakes it is possible to act contrary to the dharma therefore constantly examining one's own errors and abandoning them is the bodhisattva's practice I think one thing that we'll see time and time again with the teachings is this importance of integrating them in our life. And so it's like a recipe. Let's say you're making soup or something, and the soup is just bland, right? So what do you do when soup is bland? Yeah, you add spice, you add salt or something, right? And so the Dharma's like that. Like, we're just living our life, and then we need to... We need to add this pinch of salt or spices, which is the Dharma. And it influences when you, when you do it right, the whole soup is full of flavor, right? The vegetables, the, if you have meat in there, the potatoes, everything is filled with this, right? Everything. If you put the salt in, it's not just a few things get salted, but everything gets salted. With the Dharma, sometimes the Dharma is just when we're doing good, and we want to shine the light of mindfulness on our good parts and not the ones we don't want to look at, right? Those, those are the ones that are a little bit more difficult and that needs the most amount of light. We need the most amount of mindfulness. So we want to mix the Dharma with our minds, right? We mix in the Dharma. So everything that arises is, is met with the Dharma. What I mean by that is mixed with non, non-judgmental, compassionate awareness, right? So even our coping mechanisms, so even if our coping mechanism, let's say to eat, like we, we binge watch Netflix or, or go to the refrigerator, mindfully binge watching Netflix meditation, right? Mindfully going to the refrigerator for comfort food because I'm feeling stressed. Feeling stress, eating ice cream meditation. Really, no, there's no problem in that. And with non-judgmental, compassionate awareness, you know, doing these things. This is the only way, like the text will say, you know, once we find the thief, you know, then we could deal with the thief. And the thief here is the thief stealing away our happiness. This is the thief of we, we will see our karmic actions stealing away our happiness because when we're really mindful, even of the coping mechanisms, we see this didn't lead to my long-term happiness. It stole away 
my happiness. Right? We see that. And as our compassion arises, this loving kindness, emptiness, as this compassion arises for ourselves, we no longer want one minute of suffering for ourselves. Like we wouldn't want one moment of suffering for our child or our pet or our loved one. Not one moment. We don't want one moment of suffering. So that has to be within. Not one moment of suffering do we want for ourselves. Because it seems like we're okay with that. It seems like allowing ourselves to suffer, yeah. But if our child or, you know, our, our dear one, no, we, don't, we would never put harm upon them, yeah? Yet, <clears throat> those things are not so easy. And we could, we could watch this. I don't know if you've ever really maybe experienced this. Where that internal dialogue, like there's something that, this is an example, there's something that you know you should do, and I know I've done this a thousand times, 10,000 times probably, there's something that I know I should do, and so I know I should do it, and then I watch my mind, and my mind talks me out of it, like I should call this person, or I should go to the gym or something. And I'm like, well, you know, it's a little late. Maybe I shouldn't call him today because maybe I don't have enough time. So then the mind will talk ourselves out of it. And then there's a slight release. Once you talk yourself out of it effectively, you feel a little bit of relief. You're like, oh, yeah, I think I'm right. I shouldn't go to the gym. That would be dumb. <laughs> I shouldn't meditate today. I don't have enough time to write meditate or to correctly meditate. So there's a little bit of, of release in there. And then the moment after that is usually a little bit of unmindful, I'm gonna space out on Facebook instead, or or right uh, there's a something other thing that happens where, uh, at least in my case, I'll just check out because I'm not ex I'm not actually genuinely authentically happy with my decision. Although I talked myself into it just enough to go into a coping mechanism to do something else that is easier for me or habitually easier for me. Yet sustaining mindfulness through that entire process and actually sitting with the subtle ache of, you know what, I didn't really do what's in my heart authentically. And also taking care of myself, like maybe I can't do that right. That's all right too. But really being present through all of that process, non-judgmentally, not being through this process. We're not saying that we want to be through this process so we could beat ourselves up. We're going through the process so we could just clean out the room and pull everything out, make it messy, right? Get everything nice and messy. And so you can see what we're dealing with and saying, yeah, I do that all the time. <laughs> yeah. And once we know we do that and say, okay, why do we do that? In that very moment of that decision, you know, can we hold whatever we we're pushing away? Can we hold that? You know, we're looking for some kind of release from what? You know, mindfulness, looking into the ultimate nature of that emotion or that thought or that belief that I might fail or I might, I might be... Uh, 
you know, someone might not think the best of me, or I might get in a confrontation, whatever that is, that's arising. Mindfully being with that. So this is examining the defects. So 32, going on to the next one. If influenced by disturbing emotions, one points out another bodhisattva's faults, one's self is diminished. Therefore, not speaking about the faults of those who have entered the great vehicle is the bodhisattva's, uh, bodhisattva's practice. The great vehicle here means the Mahayana path. In Buddhism, there's um, different vehicles. The, the Hinayana, Mahayana, uh, Vajrayana, Tantrayana. But there's different, these different vehicles. But Tibetan Buddhism is what they, in what they call the Mahayana vehicle. That's what's meant by that. So this is basically a right speech. And there's actually the text, I mean, I'm sorry, the verse not the next verse, but the one after that is actually um, her speech. But this is saying, especially for our sangha, our, our spiritual friends, to not have right, uh, wrong speech. But I, I think it's really important to note, again, with this, these two truths, is that it's only because of our, the lack of insight that we don't see uh, ourselves and others. So this harsh speech comes because there's still subject-object happening. And also on a relative level, the bodhisattva vow that we're here to help other beings. We're here to help ourselves and others. So in both cases, not really connecting with our motivation and our insight it leads to wrong speech. And then, you know, these, a lot of the texts say, you know, we, our Dharma practice, we start with our Sangha because it's easier, right? We all have those precious jewels in our lives, right? That really push our buttons. But hopefully here, like when we're around our, our spiritual friends, then we could be um, at least on our best behavior. <laughs> like when we're around, you know, if we're at med meditation centers, we're, you know, we're on retreat or something, we, we're just reminded of our, our highest nature, right? So it's a little bit easier to start here. But in reality, all beings carry Buddha nature. There's, there's no sentient being that is not our brother or sister. There's not one one fly, one, one bird, we're all these uh, conscious beings. All beings have, have this Buddha nature. Okay, so the next one. Because the influence of gain and respect causes quarreling and the decline of the activities of listening, pondering, and meditation. To abandon attachment to the household of friends, relations, and benefactors is the bodhisattva's practice. I don't know if you remember, but some of the earlier verses, they talked about leaving your homeland and going off in secluded caves and meditating. And we're like, wow, that's pretty severe. 
Um, the key here is the attachment, the attachment piece, right? Removing attachment to, to these loved ones, to, to success. So this is really about that factor of, of attachment. And so again, folding it into the two truths of when attachment arises. So for example, coming here today, like I was really looking forward to the talk today and I was also noticing my attachment and my aversion uh, being that I was coughing all morning and all this and that. I was just like, oh. But also looking at the, the motivation of that and looking at ultimately it was going to be okay and I showed up and Wendy was here and I thought, okay. I had something happen actually yesterday. Um, I I did I did a few paintings and some of them came out. I really I really liked them, and I thought one was like, oh, I really like this painting. This is my favorite painting that that I've ever done. Like I really really liked it, and I wanted to start preserving the the paintings. So I went. And I asked, I went to Aaron Brothers and said, you know, how do you, how do you preserve paintings? Because I'm not much, I don't have much experience painting, so I don't really know all the rules. And they said, um, oh, you put a clear coat, you know, on top, and it'll preserve the painting. So, cool. So, it's like a spray can, clear coat. And, uh, and I spray painted a bunch of my paintings with this clear coat. A lot of people know that they're... I hear these oohs and ahs like there's some artist in the room that knows what's going to about to happen. <laughs> and, uh, and it's made for painting. It has paintbrushes on it, and it's made to paint clear coat canvases. And um, I read all the instructions, everything. So, yeah, I woke up the next day. And if you look at it straight on, it looks great. But if you just turn your head, you could see everywhere where I went over it. And they were all... Ruined. Yeah, they're all marks. So if you just go look then, and so they're all gone. And um, and so I noticed attachment arising. I was like, oh my god, they're all ruined. And um, I'm also they're also going to to be at an event tonight too. So that was a whole other issue. <laughs> I was like, what am I going to show? So I felt all the all the attachment to that. Mm-hmm. And but I was also very happy to note that, you know, my motivation for for doing the work and whatnot is, you know, to help add joy to people's lives or, or whatnot for, for others. And I definitely sat with that disappointment for a few minutes. And then I was really happy to see that there was this Abandonment of, of attachment to it too, just saying, okay, yeah, you know, it didn't work out. Okay, started problem solving and, and went from there. And I really noticed that uh, I've been practicing with the, the two truths for the last few weeks. They've just been arising in my awareness. I was like, man, it's like unfailingly hap- It's unfailingly, it brings you to an unfailing place of happiness, right? You cannot go wrong. Because when there is wrong, you see the right and the wrong. And when there is right, 
you see your motivation arising and, and helping others. So if you're, if you're really truly there to help others, then, then that comes no matter what, right? The service or the, the, the um, uh, all that we get from service is in the service itself. It's not in the outcome, right? Like we just feel that. All we could do is serve. That's it. And then we have that, that overlay of ultimate truth. We know that everything's happening perfectly as it is. It's like that great story of the, the farmer that has a horse and the horse gets out and his friends come and say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm so, I'm so, you must be so disappointed that your horse got out. You only had one horse. And he says, oh, it's not good, not bad. We're going to have to wait and see. And so his one horse comes back with another horse. And his friends say, oh, you must be so elated. You only had one horse, now you have two horses. He says, well, not good, not bad. We're going to have to wait and see. And then his son is, you know, breaking in the wild horse, and he gets pitched off and falls and, you know, breaks his leg. And his friends say, oh, you must be so sad. Your son now has a broken leg. He says, not good, not bad. We're going to have to wait and see. The village ends up going to war. All the young men pass away, except his son, who has a broken leg. Not good, not bad. You have to wait and see. Don't know mind is so, so beautiful, so amazing. If we could only stay in don't know mind with this loving, compassionate heart, then everything is just falls into place as it is. Nothing is right, nothing is wrong. But right is right and wrong is wrong. You have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.